Good to see everybody. Those of you two who are watching live stream, hello, good morning. Been gone for a week and a half. It's, it's amazing to be back here uh, watching it online. And again, to those who are watching online, it's, it's a joy to do it. But there's a reason why God says, um, do not neglect the habit of gathering together. Why the psalmist over and over again says, in the assembly of God's people, I will declare your praise. Um, and so, good to be back. Let me address an elephant that, that's starting to kind of prop up in, in, in our family room here. Um, and that elephant, I think, is getting just a little bigger and bigger. So, we have protocols on, on how we gather on Sunday mornings. And for a long time, they've been out there and we've kind of remained silent on it. And a lot of things have evolved and changed. So let me just clearly communicate uh, just a, f a few things. Uh, number one, know this, your elders are just seeking God and wrestling uh, with God on, on, on all matters, uh, even pertaining to how we should gather, protocols, uh, what protocols, all of that. And as God gives us clarity, just know that we'll communicate it. Until that point, though, two things. Number one, because we are all in different places, can we wear masks in and can we wear masks out? Uh, I just think that that is where we need to be at this time. When we're seated, uh, the ball is in your court. You do what you need to do according to your conscience. Um, and I mean, right now we can gather in a restaurant and for a whole hour, even an hour and a half, we can remove our masks. And I know that there are some people here that, according to their conscience, uh, to have that mask on during worship just feels wrong. And so this falls into the bucket of what we constantly communicate about who we are as a church. We are a kingdom of priests. We are all pastors. We are all prophets. Uh, we, are, we are all missionaries. And we call you to own uh, your sphere of influence and to be a player there for the kingdom of heaven, this falls in that bucket. Um, you own it. You own what you're supposed to do. And then in that, if we can't have unity and seek unity, which is about loving each other, believing the best about each other, exalting each other, if we can't have unity on, on this matter, this is child's play compared to what's on the horizon. And so if, 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 if anything I have said is just too much for you, there is one church in Grand Rapids, and it doesn't have to be Crossroads. And I'm perfectly fine with saying that because the unity of this church is most important. And, and we all have to participate in seeking that unity. So I like to end these by saying, Capiche, are we all on board with this? <laughs> I know. 
And we feel all these tensions in our world. We just can't, the, the church in my day growing up was the unsafe place and the world was a safe place. Do you realize how that's changed? The church now is becoming a refuge and a safe place. And the world is becoming the, 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 the place of judgment and being canceled and all of that. But not here, okay? All right. Um, another thing that's very important. And I think this means more to me and to our team this year than it has any other time in light of the year that we've been through. Uh, we are approaching what, what the church calls Lent. Lent simply means spring, but Lent is something specific. It's 40 days. It's the 40-day period leading up to Good Friday. This Wednesday kicks off Lent. We are going to have an Ash Wednesday service right here. Starting 40 days this Wednesday calling our church to prepare our hearts as we get closer and closer to Good Friday and then Easter. Preparing our hearts by emptying ourselves, by saying no to whatever God puts on our heart that we need to say no to because it's getting in the way so we can say a bigger yes to Christ. And so this Wednesday too, I would love to see this many people here gathered to just start off these 40 days um, as we uh, march our way to Good Friday. Okay, that's all I had. Again, at any time in the gathering, uh, please feel free to come up and participate in the Lord's Supper or communion. Let's go in our Bibles to John chapter 17. So we've been looking at the last night, Jesus with his disciples. John gives us this incredible gift. He devotes five precious chapters to describe this last night in all its detail. And as we've already seen, uh, this whole night starts off with, with, with a shocker. Uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And this sets the table for everything that Jesus is about to say to them. Because washing someone's feet in that world was what the lowest person in the room was responsible to do because it was the lowest of all acts. And so Jesus washes their feet. He takes that position. As John says, to show the full extent of his love, how far he will actually go, how he will humble himself, how he will humiliate himself to serve these guys. And when he's all done, here's the punch. He says, I have set an example for you. What I have done for you, you will now go and wash the feet of the world. Now that act is a shocker in and of itself, but probably the biggest shocker is immediately following this act when Jesus tells these guys, I'm leaving you. And this crushes these guys. They're devastated. The text also says that Jesus is crushed. 
These guys have been in this intimate relationship for three and a half years, 24-7, 365. Now, I don't know if you've ever been with someone who's about to leave or about to die, but if you have, you know that there are no wasted words, that the things that are said are of utmost importance. I had this about a year and a half ago. I was visiting my high school football coach, Bob Blackwire. Man, it's taken me this long to talk about it. Um, he had terminal brain cancer, and uh, he was, it was in the advanced stages. Death was imminent, and this man was more than my football coach. He was one of the top five most influential people in my life. I remember when I started junior high, uh, we both showed up at, at, at this school together. Him as his first day of teaching, me as a sixth grader, my first day of junior high, and uh, the memories that we had of playing golf after school, um, basketball, ping pong. Um, anyway, this last time together, I mean, we just, we, we relived a lot of these memories. He gave me a, a, a CD with, with, with a highlight film that I actually left at his house that night because of everything else, but... I do remember that we said things to each other that night that we had never said before. Because we both knew this was the last time we were going to be together. And this is Jesus and his disciples. And, 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 and this, these disciples are thinking with Jesus leaving them that this whole thing is over, but little do they know that actually the whole thing is just getting started this revolution, the kingdom of heaven that is about to shake the entire world and it's gonna happen through them. But in this place of turmoil, we see how Jesus, through his last words and all the detail that John gives us, uh, Jesus is pastoring them, he's coaching them, he's preparing them, and most of all, he's loving them. And now Jesus concludes these final words with a prayer. Now this isn't just any prayer. This isn't even just a prayer of Jesus. This is his departing prayer that he prays. Let's read John 17. We're going to be looking at this for the next two weeks. Please stand for the first five verses and a few other ones. Do not be disappointed if I leave a lot of meat on the bone because, again, like I said, we're going to be hitting the rest of it next week. After Jesus said this, said what? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Do not get discouraged. I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has now come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. 
And then jump down to verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, they being the disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. And then verse 24. Father, I want those you have given to me to be where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This is God's word. You can be seated. So this text is like a diamond. I mean, a diamond is, is beautiful to behold because it has all these faces to it, and, and each face has its own brilliance. And so this is, but, but, but in that, even though it, it, it's beautiful to behold, it's, it's, it's very difficult to explain. And that's this prayer. This prayer is beautiful, but it's, 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 it's difficult to know how to explain it. I'll just give you some structure here. Verses 1 to 5, which is what we're going to be looking at today, is where Jesus prays for himself, particularly his hour. Verses 6 to 19 is where Jesus prays for his disciples. And then the last part, this is amazing, he has us on his mind. He's praying for us in verses 20 to 26. Today we're going to look at, namely, verses 1 to 5, where Jesus starts this prayer with these words, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. (laughs) Now, I I, I don't know if you know what we just read, but here we are brought into the most stunning, mysterious beyond beautiful, most indescribable reality there is. And it's the inner life of God. In the inner life of God, we we have theological terms for this, like Trinity or triune God. This idea that, that, that we as Christians believe that God is one being, and yet, mysteriously, three persons. I just try to map, wrap your mind around that. But I don't want us to get uptight about this reality about God, what we believe about God, because to think about God rightly, to think about Jesus rightly, we have to believe this mystery, because this is what the Bible teaches, that God is one. He is one being but mysteriously three persons. Maybe a way to think about this is that God is not one-dimensional. God is three-dimensional. Where each dimension is so uniquely and utterly perfect that it forms its own distinct person, and then the relationship of each dimension to to the other is also utterly perfect, So perfect is this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we can say three persons, one God. Now the echoes of this God are already found in the beginning movements of the Bible when God creates the world. 
I mean, God says, let us make, let us create. Us, us is plural. And even the name for God, it's the generic name for God. The personal name for God is, is Yahweh. The generic name for God um, is, is El. Um, El is singular. Elohim is plural. Elohim is what is found in the Bible to describe God because God is one, but he's a plurality. Or even think about how God created the world. He simply spoke it. Or maybe he sang it. Well, tell me what you need to speak. You need a speaker. You need words. And you need breath to form those words. The Father speaks it. The Spirit is the breath. The Son is the actual word. And this God is in the backdrop of the entire biblical story. There is a father who is purposing it, a son who is executing it, and a spirit who is applying it. But this is about as far as I'm gonna go in explaining this mystery because the moment that we can fully explain God, God ceases to be God. And this mystery is robbed of its beauty. And this is the danger of theology. I don't know why, but when I was in seminary, it just, it took the life out. It's like, but anyway, because it's, it's, it's <laughs> you laugh because I know you can relate to me. <laughs> because here's what happens. We try to perfectly explain God. We actually kill God. God isn't meant to be perfectly explained. God is to be known, known. It's right here in Jesus' prayer. Father, that they might know you, the only true God, and his son whom you've sent. Do you know him? Do you know him? I'm not asking you know about him. Do you know him? We'll come back to this. Now, why does it matter, though, that God is one being, yet three persons? Why does someone like Eugene Peterson, who is uh, one of my heroes, pastor, writer, theologian, he says the belief of God as Trinity is the centerpiece of everything, everything. I mean, think about it. Try to map your, wrap your mind around this. God being one being, yet three persons, mean that God within himself is a community. Or better yet, a family. That's why father, son, I mean, these are family terms. In other words, God is not just this force. God is not an abstraction. God is God is personal. Think about the first thing our soul says when we come to know him for the first time. We say, Abba, Father. And in this prayer, we have a window into the most wondrous reality there is. This dynamic, explosive, 
relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a relationship marked by glory and the adoration of the other, motivated by the purest of of love. Look at verse 1. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. And don't leave the Spirit out of this either, because in the previous chapter, in, in verse 16, Jesus says, or maybe verse 14, the Spirit glorifies the Son. And, and, and in this, Spirit glorifying the Son, Son glorifying the Father, Father glorifying the Son and the Spirit. This is the inner life of God, of the Trinity. Now just think about what it means to, to glory or to glorify someone. It's to attach utmost worth utmost significance to that person. It's to praise them. It's to honor them. It's to to delight in them. It's to selflessly defer, to serve them. That's God. In fact, if you want one of the purest windows into that, look at Jesus washing feet. Because that is a window into the inner life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They stoop to praise and adore, to glory, to delight in the other. And what fuels this stooping? Love. The most pure kind of love there is. I mean, it's Valentine's Day, if you didn't know. Think about when two people love each other. They're always seeking to please the other person. They'll do anything to make that other person happy. They selflessly serve them. They adore them. They glory in them. Or look at it from this angle. Have you ever had a time where someone just made you feel like a million dollars because of something they said or did? And you just felt so exalted, so full. This is but a fraction of the inner life of the Trinity. This is a family, not seeking their own glory, but selflessly bringing glory to the other, delighting and adoring the other, literally pouring love, oceans of love into each other. And through Jesus' prayer, verse 5 and 24, Jesus says, this has been going on before the world began. In other words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving each other this way, glorifying in each other this way throughout all eternity. Now, what does this mean? It means that at the heart of the universe is relationship. That ultimate reality right now is love. It's a family of persons delighting in each other, selflessly sharing and giving of themselves to one another, bringing glory and praise, delighting in the other. That's what's at the center of the universe. And only Christianity believes this about God. That's why the church father Augustine said this. He says, if you don't have a Trinitarian view of God, you don't have a perfect one. 
because he says what you're left with is a God who never loved anybody until he created the world. I mean, think about it. If God is not a trinity, then prior to making the world, he never had a relationship. And love cannot exist if there's not someone else to love. But John says elsewhere in 1 John 4, he says God is love. It's because God has always had someone to love. Now to the ancient world, this conception of God, I mean, it's radical. I mean, their idea about God or the gods, um, first of all, even when it came to creation, that God did this for personal glory or he was on some power trip. In fact, when you read the ancient creation accounts about these gods or other gods, uh, these creation accounts are violent. The gods are all battling it out until one god is finally supreme. It's all about power. Now, moderns today are like, man, thank goodness we don't believe that stuff. And, and then even take it so, so far to, to not even believe in God at all. But think about the modern understanding of why we're here. Evolution. What's it based on? Power. Survival of the fittest. The strongest. I mean, it's all premised on power. Survival of the fittest is, is, is why we are here. It's, it's what created the world. It's what sustains the world. And so to survive, for your life to have meaning, significance, satisfaction, it's all about power. It's about being the strongest, the richest, the prettiest, the smartest. We know that. That's the world we live in. But our God, the God of the Bible, did not create the world because he was on some power trip needing glory. Because why? He already had it. He didn't make the world because he was lonely and needing someone to love. He already had infinite amounts of love. God made us because of love. Because God is love. And so love not power is at the center of the universe. And God made us to share us, to share that love, to bring us into that love, which is why we've been made in his image. And Jesus came to this world not to get praise, not to get love. He already has all of that in the family of the Trinity. Jesus came to this world to get us back because this is what we lost. We lost the love of the Father. We lost this family. We lost home. And God so badly wants us back because he wants to share the glory, the love, the delight, and the joy of the Trinity with us. And that's why Jesus says in verse 3, now this is eternal life. If you want a simple definition of what eternal life is, it's the inner life of God. In 
And Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they might know this, that they might know the Father, that they might know the Son, that they might know the Spirit. And this word in, 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 in the Greek for know is the word gnosko. It's very much like the Hebrew word for to know, which is yada. And we've talked more um, in this church about yada than gnosko, but, but they have the same kind of connotation. Um, this is not intellectual knowing. It's, it's not to know about something. It's this personal knowing. It's the knowing that comes to the personal experience of that thing. That's why there are some people in this room right now that are just like, duh, I know exactly what you're talking about because you've experienced it. But there are others of you in this room right now that are just dull to everything I've said because you might even know about it and you could even give the greatest theological answer about the Trinity right now, but not know it. I mean, look outside. We love that weather, don't we? <laughs> Imagine someone who lived their whole life in a warm, hot climate, never leaving it, but they came, became infatuated with cold, cold weather, and they studied it. And through their study of it, learned everything about it. But imagine the moment for the first time that they actually stepped into that and felt it, the shock of it. Seeing their breath for the first time. That's gnosko. That's what it means to know. Do you know God that way? Do you know the inner life of God that way? This is the same word that, that, that Paul uses over and over again, um, like when he says, I consider everything as dung, <laughs> crap, or <laughs> I will stop, I won't say. <laughs> In my 20s, I probably would have. <laughs> I don't need all the emails. <clears throat> There, I, at least I got the word in your mind. He says it. That's literally what he would say. I consider everything as dung, as crap compared to knowing him. Knowing him. And this is why the, the Bible, it, it, it uses words like adoption and, and, and being adopted in, be, because it's this intimate. Or it's why Jesus uses metaphors like vine and branches, because we don't just know about him, we are literally in him. We are in this flow of God's glory, his love, and this flow is like a mighty flood in our lives. And this is not something that's just future, Jesus says. This is, this is, this is right now eternal life of knowing this, participating in this. Do you know it?
because this is eternal life that you might know. I really want you to read this prayer this week, John 17. Because Jesus is praying things like this. He's praying things like, Father, as I am in, am in you and you are in me, may they also be in us. He's praying things like, Father, may they know our love. <laughs> may they know, listen to this, may they know that you love them as much as you love me. Do you know that? You want to know how people change from the inside out? It's because of that one statement. That kind of love is what melts this stony heart, the love of the Father that loves us as much as he loves his own son. Or Jesus is gonna pray like verse 13 that we read, Father, may they know our joy, (laughs) the full measure of it. Because this is what the inner life of God produces. Produces joy. It, it, it produces infinite amounts of joy, which is why God is in this constant state of joyful ecstasy. And, and, and joy, not just because it's a joyful thing to receive the praise and adoration of someone else, but more importantly, there is no greater joy than to seek someone else's joy. There's no greater happiness than to say what makes me happy is doing what makes you happy. And this is why Jesus is even approaching something like the cross. And he's talking about his joy. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Do you know joy today? Are you abounding in joy? Because joy is the serious business of heaven. God made us for joy. Christ came to the world to bring joy. And it's a joy that has nothing to do with our circumstances. It's completely rooted in our relationship with him. It's when we participate in the family of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the kind of joy that just thrives in the midst of trials and tribulations and suffering and even deep grief. It's what Dan talked about last week from John chapter 16, verse 22. It's a joy that we have and and no one can take it away. Do you have joy? See, we only know joy, we only share in this joy when we live not for our own glory, but to bring glory to others, when we bring glory to God. That's what our whole text is about today, glory. Jesus is praying that he'd bring glory to the Father, the Father, that the Father would bring glory to the Son. And here's the reason why the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are in this perpetual state of joy. It's because they're in this perpetual state of bringing honor and glory to the other. 
And God made us in his image. God made us like God. And he made us to know this God and to reflect the heart of this God. And that's why the surest way to destroy joy is simply to live for yourself. It's the biggest joy killer there is. Seek your own glory. Because to do so literally goes against the grain of the center of the universe. Goes against the very heart of God. Look at us. We're so fixated on ourselves. We're so obsessed with ourselves. Life has become all about seeking glory, seeking happiness. And we do this by loving ourselves, promoting ourselves, exalting ourselves, living to satisfy ourselves. But when I become the most significant thing in my life, my life loses all significance. And when the only thing that matters is me, nothing begins to matter. And seeking our own glory is actually the way that we lose glory. And seeking our own happiness is the way that we lose happiness. And to live for ourselves, the Bible says, is literally the pathway to hell. And the reason why Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are infinitely happy is because they don't seek the praise and the glory for themselves. In fact, throughout all eternity, they have been stooping low to bring honor and glory and praise and delight to the other. And if you and I want to share in God's glory and his love and his joy... We absolutely cannot live for ourselves. We can't seek glory for ourselves because we're flying right in the face of the heart of God. In fact, we're, we're cutting ourselves off from what we were designed to be. We were made to be like God, and we were made for the glory of God and to bring glory to others. Does that define your life? Is that who you are? Would people say that about you? Now, nothing shouts or screams or brings to light this first utterance of Jesus' prayer. Father, the hour has come that the Son may glorify you. And Father, would you glorify your Son? We've learned throughout this time of studying John, hopefully, that when Jesus talks about his hour, that hour is his gruesome death. And that's why he begins this whole prayer with, the hour has come. It's time for the Son of Man to be lifted up and to die. So I always read these, these verses, and we've talked about this uh, several weeks ago, but I just want to linger in this a little bit more. Um, I've already, always read these verses as, okay, Father, I'm going to die now. I know that, and you know that. But after I get through this horrible hour, Father, then would you, would you glorify me? Would you give to me the glory that, that I once had? But that's not entirely what Jesus is praying 
What he's actually praying is he's saying, Father, glorify me in this hour, through this hour. And then in verse 24, that other verse we read, he's saying, Father, and, and let those who belong to me, let them see the glory, my glory, in this hour. I don't know if you've watched The Passion of Christ. I know that when it first came out, um, and I, I, I went to it, I've only watched it once. It was too much for me. And I, and I left there just thinking, all right, Mel Gibson took this way too far. But you know my, 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 my study um, in, in culture and history and all this, and as I have continued to study it, Mel Gibson got it right. That beating, that crucifixion that Jesus took, was that horrific? Listen to what Isaiah says in 52. See, my servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And many will be appalled at him. Appalled. Some of the translations are literally will have to hide their faces because his appearance was so disfigured behind that of any human being and his form so marred beyond human likeness. We're looking at the one who created the stars, the galaxies. And the psalmist was so right when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God day after day. They pour forth such speech. What Christ did in creating the world, I mean, every day screams glory. But what Jesus is saying in this prayer, that the ultimate expression of God's glory is not before or after the shame of the cross. It is in the shame of the cross. In verse 2, Jesus says, the one who has all the authority, who's in charge of the universe, prays, Father, in my hour, in my death, let them see my glory. He's so marred. He's not even presentable as a human being. He's made brutally ugly. That people literally have to turn their face. Do you see what this means? It means there's no greater glory than to give up our glory to bring glory to someone else. There's no greater beauty than to give up our beauty, to literally make ourselves ugly 
to make someone else beautiful. And C.S. Lewis rightly says about the cross, he says, when Jesus went to the cross, he was simply doing what Father, Son, and Spirit have been doing throughout all eternity in the family of the Trinity. If you want to know what the inner life of God looks like. Because the heart of God is to give up. It's to give up everything for the other. And nothing shows the inner life of God more, the heart of God more than the cross. And Jesus' prayer is that we would know this and that we would share in this. Jesus so badly wants his love, his joy, his glory, the glory of the cross living in us. That our lives would be cross-shaped. That the way of the cross would be manifesting itself in us and through us. Do you know him? Do you have eyes to see the glory of God in Christ? Is this stunningly beautiful? Do you know this love? See, when I look at this, I can actually believe when Jesus prays, Father, may they know that you love them as much as you love me. Those aren't just words. Is your life flooded with this love? Do you know how you know? Your life will begin to reflect this glory. It will, it will begin to reflect this beauty. You'll stop seeking glory for yourself. You will be freed up of that. And you will stoop low to bring glory to God and glory to others. And your life will be filled with this explosive joy. And do you know what would happen if we really believed that the way up is the way down and the way to glory is to give up glory and the way to true joy is to seek another's joy and the way to find life, true life, is by losing your life? And we more than just believe that, but we actually lived it Well, Jesus tells us what would happen in verse 21. The world would look at us and they would actually believe. They would come to know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom this God has sent. That's what would happen. So as we are about to approach Lent, can I just say get to know this God and seek him with all your heart until you know him. Spend time with this God. These next 40 days, let's encourage each other in this pursuit. 
Let me end with this, the, the, the song that God put on my heart to end this sermon this week. In the back of my mind, I can't remember if it was this song or if it was another song that was connected to the Welsh revival. And, and what I found out, sure enough, it was this song. But then that sent me down a whole rabbit trail because I've always known about the, the, the Welsh revivals, 1904 to 1906, but I, I didn't really know anything other than that, that it happened on those dates. And this sent me down a rabbit trail of just exploring what happened. Do you realize there was not a single personality attached to this? There was no big Billy Graham. There was no John Wesley or, or, or Whitfield. In fact, they, they tie it to a 16-year-old girl who got up one Sunday morning in her church leg shaking, mouth quivering, but from her heart said, I love Jesus with all my heart. Because that's the one thing that God's love needs. It needs to be reciprocated. And listen to, there was, there was literally a journalist there when this girl did this, the, the journalist's name was W.T. Stead. He said, the pathos and the passion of that young girl acted like an electric shock upon the congregation, one after another, rose and made the full surrender, and the news spread like wildfire from place to place. And this news of this little spark that led to a fire that ignited went all the way to London, and the famous preacher there in London, C. Campbell Morgan, said, I have to go find out what's going on. He travels to Wales. He experiences it and comes back, and this is what he says to his church. He said, if you and I could stand above Wales in the heavens and we could look down on it, we'd see a fire breaking out all over the country of Wales. He said, it is the divine visitation of the one true God in which he is saying to us, see what I can do without the things you are depending on. See what I can do in answer to a praying people. See what I can do to the simplest who are needy and fall in love with me and depend wholly and absolutely on me. And it was out of this fire, Amen. that one song, Amen. Do we want this? Do we want to be distracted by all the issues that are out there that come in here that divide us? So we're looking at lesser things and we're doing everything the enemy wants to do, which is deceive us. Divide us. Distract us. Discourage us. This church exists for the glory of God. And we exist to seek it with all our heart. And may this song that we're about to sing
which also took off like wildfire in the Welsh revivals. They called it the love song. The love song. That was a nice amen. (laughs) The love song of the Welsh revivals. Here is love, fast as the ocean. God, for those of us who don't know, may your spirit apply this to our hearts and open the eyes of our hearts and invite us in because Jesus has made the way. And God, for those of us who do know, because we have experienced it, But maybe we're distracted. Maybe we've drifted. God, would there be much repentance in this room today? And thank you for the table. Communion is what we call it. It comes out of the word koinonia. This intimate oneness that you seek with us, the oneness that is in the Trinity. God, for those of us this morning who are repenting and turning back to you, God, thank you that you give us this meal. And through it, God, would it be real food. God, ignite a fire in your church. Bring about repentance. If my people humble themselves and pray and turn from their sin and seek my face, then I will hear them and I will heal their land.